John 3. 1 John 3. We'll read the chapter and the text for the sermon, which I won't read a second time, are verses 19 through 24. Let's worship God as we read His Word in 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of, of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby, and now here begins the words of our text, and hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, 
and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. May God impress these words of his word on our hearts and minds. Our text is verses 19 through 24. Beloved, in Christ, God's will for us when He saves us is that we are also assured and certain of our salvation. That we say, I am absolutely sure that Christ is the propitiation for my sins, that God has manifested His love toward me in sending Jesus to lay down His life, that I am truly a son or daughter of God, that I am a Christ follower now and will spend eternity seeing Jesus as He is and be like Him. That's God's will, our certainty of our salvation. And it is not God's purpose or intent in saving a son or daughter of His that they spend their entire life wondering whether they are really saved or whether their faith is really real. That is spiritual sickness in the life of God's children. That is spiritual uh, weakness that stands in the way of growth and usefulness and activity in the kingdom of God. Because one who is doubting his or her own salvation is spending too much time looking at him or herself, and not enough time looking to God in His Word and to Jesus as He is revealed there. Doubt is not something to be nourished or encouraged in our lives of fellowship with God. Doubt is the opposite of faith. And all of us need to hear and to make our own the prayer of the father of the son possessed by a devil, who Jesus healed in John 9, verse 24. And the father's prayer was, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. If someone comes to you and they say, I know, I know that the Bible teaches that God is the Creator. That Jesus Christ is the only Savior. That faith is God's gift. That without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That marriage is between one man and one woman. That children are to be loved and nurtured by their parents in the church. I know all of that. But I don't believe it. If someone says that to you, then your response is, your problem is not a question of your mind or of your intellect, but it is 
a lack of faith. Your problem is unbelief. So with doubt in our souls. The apostle's purpose in confronting us with this reality is not so that we point the finger at the doubt of others, but so that we confront and respond biblically to that doubt when it arises in our own lives and in our own experience. We need to say to ourselves when we're not believing, when we are not laying hold of the promises that are so clearly revealed and set down in God's Word, when we are not trusting in Christ, when we are saying, I'm not sure my faith is genuine, or that Jesus paid the price for my sins, or that God loves me, when those doubts and fears arise, we need to confront them with God's Word and tell ourselves that is sinful and that is not right. And yet, the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is a very realistic pastor. He realizes that doubt, that there are seasons of doubt in every Christian's life when they ask these questions, when they are infirm in faith. He says that in verse 20, if our heart condemn us. That is a reference to doubt. And on this side of heaven, between the already accomplished life and death of Jesus Christ, the salvation that He merited for us, and the eternal life that He earned for us in His resurrection from the dead, between that accomplished reality and the not yet accomplished reality of our glorification in heaven, where we will see Jesus as He is and be like Him in this life and in this world, we will have seasons of doubt. And the canons of Dort follow the pastoral realism of the Apostle John. When our fathers in the canons set down these words in Head 5 and Article 11, where we read, The Scripture testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various carnal doubts, and that under grievous temptations they are not always sensible of this full assurance of faith and certainty of persevering. But God, who is the Father of all consolation, does not allow them to be tempted above that they are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that they may be able to bear it, and by the Holy Spirit again inspires them with the comfortable assurance of persevering. Canons get that language straight from 1 John 3. And the real reality of doubt that the apostle confronts. But also the biblical answer that he gives for us to speak to ourselves when our heart condemns us. And he makes reference at the end of our text in verse 24 to the testimony of the Spirit who has been given to us, who works assurance in us, and who does give us that comfortable testimony of persevering. And so we want to consider tonight 
in the time that remains for us, this text under the theme taken from verse 20, If our heart condemn us, God is greater. We'll notice first the real doubt, secondly the biblical answer, and third the Spirit's testimony. Let's notice that our text is a beautiful statement of confidence, of faith and assurance of the believer. John repeats that throughout. Verse 19, By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Referring back to verse 18 and the evidence of true love for one another in our lives. In verse 20, God is greater. Verse 21, If our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Verse 22, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. Verse 23, This is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And verse 24, By this we know that He abideth in us, by the Spirit which he hath given us. So John gives repeated statements of the confidence that we have as believers. Statements that we need to lay hold of and repeat to ourselves. And yet, in the middle of our text, John confronts the real, the reality of doubt in our lives as God's people. If our heart condemn us. And this if is to be understood in the same way that we said the if in chapter 2, verse 1 is to be understood last week, where the apostle says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if, when any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So here in verse 20 of chapter 3, when our heart condemns us. There will be seasons of doubt in the life of every child of God to a greater or lesser degree. But John does not then come to believers who are struggling with doubt or who are passing through seasons of temptation and whose sense of uncertainty of faith is not as strong as at other times in their life and berate them and say, you are sinning. You are doing wrong. He doesn't beat them over the head with what they already know. That they are weak and struggling children of God. But he comes alongside of his audience. Like the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us. He says, Beloved. And he addresses their doubts in a very pastoral way. As one who has experienced what he is addressing in the lives of his audience. He begins by pointing to the source of doubt. If our heart condemn us. That's in verses 20 and 21. If our heart condemn us. Our heart is the source of our doubt, in other words. And what is our heart? 
It's the spiritual aspect of our, of our being that stands before God. The heart, our hearts are what, make a, are what distinguish us from brute animals. Our hearts are what make us living and thinking and creatures that have a sense of right and wrong. Our heart is the, 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 the consciousness and the, and the conscience in which we have a sense of right and wrong before God and where we are always standing before the righteous and almighty Creator. Our heart is in a constant conversation. And that conversation centers around this question, am I a child of God or not? Am I saved or not? Am I loved by God, redeemed by Christ, being preserved in this life and being brought toward glory? Those are the conversations that, are, that we have with our heart. And notice the Apostle does not say this is the conversation or the reality in every heart. He says in verses 20 and 21, our heart, the heart of a child of God, the heart of a believer. Because no unbeliever struggles with the question of doubt. No unbeliever genuinely engages in a conversation with himself or herself about their salvation or about how they stand before God or about whether or not God loves them and will bring them to glory after preserving them in this life. Romans 2 verse 15 does say that unbelievers have a consciousness or their conscience does convict them of right or wrong so that they have some remorse. But Romans 2 verse 15 says too that the conscience of an unbeliever makes excuses for their sins or, and for themselves. And that the unbeliever holds under the testimony and conviction of their conscience in unbelief and drowns it out with pleasures and distractions and dismisses it. The Apostle in our text is speaking of our hearts, your heart and mine, as regenerated, believing children of God. And now, what does it mean that our heart condemns us? If our heart condemns us, the Apostle says in verses 20 and 21. We need to understand that there are two possible answers. One, one of these answers is biblical and the other is not. The biblical conviction of our heart is when our heart convicts us of sin and of our sinfulness. When our heart convicts us that what we have just done or not done is offense to God, is sin, and is displeasing to Him. And this is a right way to be condemned by our hearts. This is the work of the Spirit within us, testifying that we have erred from God's path and that we must repent and seek forgiveness from God. This conviction brings us to repentance and to Jesus Christ. But the con con condemnation that the Apostle is speaking of here is 
the condemnation of our heart that contradicts the testimony of the gospel and of the word of God. The condemnation whereby our heart says to us, you are not only worthy of hell, but you are going there. You are not only worthy of the condemnation of God, but you are under sentence of death from God. The condemnation of our heart the Apostle refers to is the condemnation our heart speaks to us when it turns away from the testimony of Christ in the Scriptures and begins to listen and engage in conversation with the lies of the devil. When he comes and he says, Has God said to you, Has God promised you? How can you be sure when you are such a great sinner that God loves you? He rises up as the accuser of the brethren, as Revelation 12, verse 18 calls him. He hauls out catalogs of our sins, he confronts us with the reality of our continuing imperfection. He comes to us and He says, God really doesn't love you. He comes to us in times of trial and affliction and says, how could God love you and do this to you or bring you through this unbearable affliction? And we begin to listen to Him. And our heart begins to condemn us. There's many reasons why this is so. One of them is that we have a fresh memory of sin that we've committed. Or overwhelmed by our depravity. We're haunted by our sins. The sins of youth, sins past, sins that have been forgiven, but sins that still haunt us, that rise up like specters and hoot at us. You aren't worthy of God's salvation. A heart that condemns us. And secondly, our heart can condemn us, and this is probably the greater threat, when we don't comprehend the fullness of of the gospel. In other words, when we do not comprehend the fullness of God's complete work of us and through us and in us. In other words, when we struggle with doubt because of bad theology or bad teaching. And some examples of this that we find in our day and that we we hear Around us are, for example, the Arminian teaching that says, when did you accept Jesus into your life? When did you make a decision for Christ? And then Arminian theology teaches people to set that down as a landmark moment in their life. Something they did that they can look back to and that they can say, this is how I know that God loves me because I 
made a decision for him. Or Pentecostal uh, teaching may say something like this. You know that God loves you because of the supernatural gifts that he gives to you. The gifts of healing, the gifts of speaking in tongues, the gifts, the other spiritual gifts and extraordinary evidences of the Spirit's work. Again, things that you can do that you look at and say, this is the foundation of my assurance. Or, we have an incomplete and out of balance, which is to say, unbiblical understanding of who God is. If in your mind, and in your theology, all the emphasis falls on God's righteousness, His holiness, His justice, His wrath, His majesty and His power, and we do not understand Him also as a loving, merciful, compassionate, and piteous Father, a God of friendship. If we do not embrace by faith, Nahum 1 verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knoweth them that trust in Him. When your theology is out of balance in this way, then you're terrorized by thoughts of God. Or, the opposite is true too. If in your theology all the emphasis falls on God's love and forgiveness and acceptance, if God is a God who passes by sin without dealing with it, so I don't need to worry about sin in my life, and I have sin in my life that I have never dealt with, that I have never addressed, that I have never confessed to all whom I have must confess it to and to God, our conscience is plagued by guilt because of our bad theology. Because we take our eyes off of Jesus Christ as He's set forth in the Scriptures and God as He reveals Himself there and we begin to listen to what the devil wants us to believe about God. What did he want Adam and Eve to believe about God? That God was holding out on them that God knew if they ate the fruit of the tree, they would not know that they were naked, but they would be like Him. That God was withholding from them. Satan wanted them to doubt the goodness, the love, the mercy, and the justice of God. So that's where John points us as he begins to lay out our biblical response to doubt. When doubts and fears trouble us. When our spiritual infirmity gives rise to thoughts of God that bring no peace, but rather make our fears increase. John gives us a threefold answer to that doubt. First, we find it in verses 20 and 22. Confidence in God. Confidence in God. Beloved, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. If your heart is condemning you, 
and telling you that you are not only worthy of God's condemnation, but condemned by Him. Not only worthy of hell, but actually going there. This is your response to what your heart is telling you. Think great thoughts about God. And focus on the attributes of God that the Apostle draws out for us in verse 20. God's greatness and His omniscience, His knowing all things. Meditate on the truth that God is greater than man. We are puny. We are nothing in and of ourselves. Our heart that condemns us is nothing. And we are going to listen to the testimony of our heart over against the greatness of God, about whom the Scripture says in Job 36, verse 26, God is great, and we cannot comprehend Him, neither can the number of His years be searched out. Or Psalm 103, verse 11, As the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy toward them that fear Him. Or Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, The Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, who regardeth not persons, nor taketh a bribe. God is great. This is the Lord your God. He is greater than your heart. And secondly, John says, God knows all things. We intellectually know that. But do we know that really, John is asking us. God knows all things. He knows all things about you. He knows all things about your heart. He knows things about you and your heart that you do not know. And that you may never know in this life until God brings you to glory and continues to to unfold to you the treasures of His knowledge. The Scriptures are replete with testimonies that God knows all things. Psalm 44, verse 20, If we have forgotten the name of our God, and it's when we do that that our heart condemns us, if we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For He knoweth our hearts. Acts 15 verse 17 says that God knew the hearts of some of those Gentiles who heard the Gospel. He knew them as the hearts of His children and He brought them to faith in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit working through the preaching of the apostles. 2 Timothy 2 verse 19 says the Lord knoweth those who belong to Him. And Second Peter 2 verse 9 says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. He knows how to deliver you out of the temptation to doubt. And it is this. Think great thoughts about Him. Meditate on His greatness and on His omniscience. And find your confidence in Him alone. 
Young people, one of the pieces of worldly wisdom that you will hear and no doubt have heard already is trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Listen to your heart and follow your heart. Nobody knows better than your heart or than you. That is a lie. That is the kind of lie that when we listen to it, Satan is there to exploit and to impress upon you and your heart begins to condemn you because you come to the realization very quickly that you do not know all things, that you are not great, that you are not powerful, that you are tiny, and that you are nothing. John says, look to God. He's greater than our hearts. He knows all things. His knowledge of you and me is eternal and unchangeable. And the Bible gives us a powerful illustration of that in the life of the Apostle Peter. In John 21, Peter had fallen into grievous sin, the sin of denying his Lord after boasting that he would defend Christ even if everyone else forsook him. Peter had been brought, he had been truly convicted of his sin and brought to repentance for it. And then when Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection, Jesus confronted him with the question, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's response was not to appeal to his own integrity, was not to appeal to his own works, was not to appeal to his own righteousness, but was to appeal to the knowledge of God who knows all things. First, or John 21, verse 15 through 17, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. In other words, Lord, you know too that I have done a sin that I have fallen in my life in such a way that my love for you could be questioned and questioned grievously. But you know, as the great all-knowing one, as the one who has loved me before the foundation of the world, something that's greater than my heart. You know the planting of your seed in my soul, which cannot be taken away. That is what John is talking about here, a response to doubt expressing confidence in God. And when we express that confidence in God, we do that through prayer. And that's why the apostle moves in verses 20, verse 22 immediately to prayer after saying in verse 21, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. When you know Him. When your heart no then your heart no longer condemns you. And when your heart no longer condemns you, then you have confidence toward Him. You have boldness to come to His presence in prayer and know that He hears your prayers. Not that He will give you whatever you want but that as you contemplate His greatness and His omniscience and His glory, 
he will conform your will and desires more and more to his so that the things you ask of him are the things he wants for you and he will hear your prayers. Confidence toward God. Secondly, faith in Jesus Christ is the second aspect, second response to doubt. Verse 23, this is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. When you doubt, look to God. Then look to the Gospel by believing in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle says, obey the Gospel by believing in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. John calls faith here in verse 23 a commandment. And that is what it is. Very different from how faith is often presented as an offer, as something that we have it have in our own power and of ourselves to produce. But that faith doesn't bring assurance because it's always dependent on the changeable and fickle circumstances of life or our own changeable and fickle will. Faith is not an invitation. It is a command. And as the church father Augustine said, when God commands something to His people, He gives what He commands. This is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He gives us. Faith, the ability to believe in Christ. When the command of the Gospel comes, and we respond to that command by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ through the power of God's work in us, there's reason for assurance because God has worked in us that response to the Gospel. And that's what John is saying. As you respond to the command to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you can have confidence because the Bible testifies, for example, in Acts 13, verse 48, that as many as are ordained to eternal life believe. Ephesians 2, verse 8, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of out of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And Acts 18, verse 27, speaking again of Gentiles who were brought to faith in Jesus Christ through the instrumentation of the preaching of the Apostle, says of their faith that they believed through grace and came to faith in Christ through the work of God in them. John is saying here, when in response to the gospel, you lay hold of Jesus Christ by faith, you have an evidence of God's work of grace in you. Remember, it is the believer who struggles with doubt. It is the one who has faith. It is not the one who does not have faith. And when God has begun His good work in us, 
Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. He's the object of faith. Notice that here too. That we should believe, not just believe, but believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. We don't believe on the name of a church. We don't believe on the name of a pastor. We don't believe on our own name. We believe on the name of the one whom God sent as the sacrificial lamb to bear sin and to die for our sins. The name of Christ that is given here. His Son, Jesus Christ. He is God's Son. He is of God. He is a divine Savior. He is Jesus, which means that He is Jehovah's Savior. He is the Lord our God coming, descending, condescending to us for our salvation. And He is Christ, the one anointed and appointed by God the Father and anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah to be our Mediator and Savior and Lord. It is not a man or an institution or a preacher, but Jesus Christ who is our confidence and hope. Are you wrestling with doubt today? Are you in a season of temptation that has brought your assurance to a place where it is not as vibrant as at other times? Does your heart condemn you before God? And do not say, when did I believe in the past? How long have I believed? Believe today on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Finally, our answer to doubt, according to Scripture, is love. Confidence in God, belief, faith in Jesus Christ, and thirdly, also from verse 23, love one another as He gave us commandment. And we might ask, how is this a response to doubt? How is this an answer to the doubts and fears that trouble me? Love one another. It sounds like, sounds like a work. that I'm commanded to perform. John's point in bringing it up again here is that love is a necessary circumstance or characteristic in our life for us to know and be confident in God. And that is not my word, that is the word of the Apostle in verses 18 and 19 where he says, My little children... Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And then in verse 19 he says, Hereby, which is to say, by this we know, we have confidence that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. What's he referring to? He's referring back to what he wrote in verses 16 through 18, but especially in verses 17 and 18. The love that God gives us 
for others. A love that He gives us for our brethren, especially in the church, especially those who have need, verse 17, so that we have compassion on them and we open the and we and we share our good with them. Understand that the apostle is not saying this love is the basis for our assurance before God. The basis of our assurance before God comes in verse 16 where he says, by this we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The cause of the ground of our assurance is the love of God in the death, manifested in the death of Jesus Christ. But now he comes to say, love proceeds from faith. It is an attendant and companion of faith and an essential characteristic of our life. And one who is truly a believer is one who, un- one who understands the gospel for himself or herself, who recognizes that she or he has been the object of God's undeserved and eternal love and favor, and who realizes the gift of grace in Jesus coming as the propitiation for his or her sins will love others in their own lives. This is the mark of one who is truly born again. Faith is not only something in our head. It is not only something between me and my God, but it works out in my life in love toward the body of believers. Without love for others in deed and in truth, our heart condemns us, and rightly so. That's what sin and disobedience in the life of the child of God does. It condemns us. God's commandment is, and again, His commandment that He fulfills in and through us is that we believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Because as I said in the introduction, one who doubts his or her salvation is over-focused on himself or herself. They're the navel-gazing. They're always looking inward. They're always really at the center of their own world and not looking outward at their brothers and sisters in the church who have real needs, physical and spiritual, who need them to show up in their marriage or in their family or in their friendship or in their church life as a brother or sister in Christ and demonstrate real love as it is in Jesus. This is a biblical response to doubt. Love one another as He gave us commandment. Have confidence in God. Believe in Jesus. And love each other. Now understand, these things do not create assurance. 
When there is no assurance, these things avail nothing. Because assurance is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And that's where the Apostle comes in verse 24. He that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and He in Him. That's a reference back to verse 23. And now the end of verse 24. By this, notice hereby again, by this in our English, by this we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. We heard of that this morning in our sermon on question and answer one. What is our only comfort in life and death? That we belong to Jesus. That our Heavenly Father so preserves us. That not a hair can fall from our head. And that Jesus makes us sincerely willing and ready to live to Him and assures us of eternal life. Assurance doesn't come from a pastor. Assurance doesn't come from a counselor. Assurance doesn't come from a sermon or an article or a book. Assurance comes from the Holy Spirit who is given to you by Jesus Christ. Assurance is the creation of the Spirit of our Savior. The Spirit enters into us in regeneration. And where He has entered, He creates assurance of salvation. He gives us, as John says, a testimony. Hereby we know that He abideth in us by His Spirit which He hath given us. And the Spirit gives us a testimony. Romans 8 verse 16 fits with what John is talking about in our text. Where Paul says, The Spirit Himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him in this life, hereafter we shall also be glorified together. By the Spirit you and I cry, Abba, Father. And we exclaim with the Apostle, in the first verses of 1 John 3, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And verse 2, now are we the sons of God. And we know that when He shall appear, Jesus shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. This cry that the Spirit creates in us, that He brings out of us, is not always a cry of boldness. It's sometimes a weeping cry. It is sometimes a supplicating cry. It is sometimes a cry to which there appears to be no answer. A cry like that of the psalmist in Psalm 77. But a cry that nevertheless is addressed to God. And if you go home and you read, and I I do urge you to do that, read Psalm 77 and notice where the psalmist begins. Even though he will say in the course of that psalm, the thought of God brought me no peace. The first words of that psalm are, I will direct my prayer to the Lord. Because the Spirit cannot help Himself, so to speak. 
he will always bring us to cry to God. Like a child in the night who wakes up surrounded by darkness and by fear and calls out for father and mother, confident that father and mother will hear and come and make the child's needs their care. This is the confidence that we have as children of God through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the biblical answer to doubt. He inspired the Scriptures. He knows the doubts that we're going to face. He equips us with a biblical response of confidence in God, of faith in Christ, of love, so that in Him we find the foundation for our assurance and cry out, Father. Beloved, if your heart condemns you, and if mine does, God is greater. And by this, we know that He abides in us by His Spirit whom He has given us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the Scriptures. If we only paid attention to them more, perhaps our doubts would be less. So we pray, and we pray fervently Apply thy word to our hearts and to our lives. Impress upon us, especially if we are doubting, if we are tempted, if our assurance is at low ebb, to give the biblical response to those doubts and fears that arise out of our infirmities. Give us confidence toward thee, Heavenly Father, Give us strong faith in Jesus our Savior. Give us love for one another as brethren and sisters in the Lord. Give us the testimony of the Spirit who has been given to us so that we cry, Father, and have confidence that we know Thee. Keep us from falling. Give us the grace to speak these words into the lives of others who may be struggling or who may have fallen so that as we make our way as pilgrims through this life we may do so together looking unto Jesus and together looking for that day when we will stand before him and be even as he is, perfect and sinless, without doubt, without fear, but glorious. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.